Last week, we began a series looking at the character of Abram, uh, Abraham. And as we said, Abraham is one of the most important people in the Bible, and he's one of the most important people in history, if you think about it. Um, it's remarkable, especially when we consider his origin. He didn't start his journey with the Lord until he was 75 years old. Uh, he was not a philosopher. He wasn't a king. He wasn't a warrior. He was an unknown person in the desert. Um, only remarkable thing about him was his lack of any promise, lack of future. He had no children and no name, no credit at all. Um, now, 4,000 years later, half the world, 3.8 billion people tie their faith, tie their culture, tie their identity back to Abraham. So Muslims, Jews, Christians all find their source in Abraham. It is wild. Uh, no wonder Paul calls Abraham the father of all who believe. Uh, now, when Paul in Romans 4 calls Abraham the father of all who believe, he's actually quoting this passage, Genesis 15. I had said last week that Genesis 12 was an, a, a hugely important chapter in scripture. Genesis 15 is probably the next important passage because it develops what God's redemption plan will be. Um, it is in this passage that the fullness of faith begins to show itself. And so in Genesis 12, we see the beginning of faith. Um, all God calls Abram to do is to go to a place where I will tell you to be a blessing and I will bless you. Uh, in Genesis 12, faith is simply going. It's just following God, going wherever he tells us to go. And that reminded us of Hebrews 11:6, which says, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. This is all it takes to begin a life with God, believing that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And that's all Abram did. But in Genesis 15, faith begins to grow up. And for that, I'm really thankful because I want faith in me to grow up. I don't want faith to stay at Hebrews 11.6. I told a friend this week that I wanted more maturity for myself in 2021. Uh, more peace, more courage is what I wanted. And for that, I need to believe more about God than that he simply exists. I need to believe more about God than simply that he rewards those who seek him. Faith that remains so simple isn't able to withstand the difficulties of life. Uh, it's not able to go the places where God asked me to go. It's not able to stay the places where God asked me to stay. And so I'm thankful for the description in Hebrews 11. Um, I'm thankful for the example of Abram in Genesis 12, which shows us that simple faith is all it takes to draw near to God. Um, it shows me that it doesn't matter if I'm old. It doesn't matter if I'm childless and nameless. It doesn't matter if I've been worshiping idols my whole life. Um, at any point, I can draw near to God if I believe he exists and that he's good to those who diligently seek him. That's good news. And it's good news that we all need to return to at times. What is, what is simple faith? But walking with God only begins there. It begins simply. But faith is meant to deepen over time. And I am meant to deepen with it. And that's what we get to watch as we read the story of Abraham, how his faith changes and deepens over time. Uh, we saw Abraham take the first step of faith last week, and today we get to watch him take his sort of big step two. In Genesis 15, 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. After these things. And so we need to be caught up to this. Um, our faith deepens in context. Uh, it deepens in life. The transcendent God meets us where we are, coming to us in our stories, drawing us into his. 
uh, Romans 10, it says the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. And so we don't have to become gurus. Uh, we don't have to go on this like long spiritual journey. We don't have to um, seek a search deep in our hearts to find God. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. And so Abraham, Abraham doesn't have to go on this spiritual pilgrimage of ascent or descent. He just has to live his life with God. And that's what he's doing in chapters 12 through uh, 14. He's just living his life in faith and God meets him after these things. We're not really sure how much time has passed since Genesis 12, surely a few years because a lot happens. And so I wanna just sort of quickly catch us up um, to that. Immediately after we left Abraham last week, he has a moment of failed faith. And so it's this very, so Genesis 12 is this really encouraging thing where he, he believes God, he leaves uh, the land of his father and, and goes to Canaan, but very quickly, um, a huge failure. Uh, he flees a famine in Canaan. And we're not really told whether he flees in faith because God told him to flee, or maybe he'd flee because he was worried. Um, and so he decided to go to Egypt. We don't know why he goes. Um, but as he enters Egypt, he's worried for his safety. Uh, Genesis 12 says, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. This is a baffling story. We're not really told Abram's plan for after Sarai says that she's his sister. Um, was he thinking that he could stall them in a way, like sort of Laban stalls uh, Isaac and later in Genesis, maybe he's wanting to put off marriage while they court Sarai and then he can get back to Canaan. We don't know if that was his plan. That's certainly the most generous assessment of his plan. Uh, but whatever his plan was, it backfired uh, because Sarai's beauty at the age of 65 uh, reached Pharaoh. Um, and Genesis 12, verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. And so Sarai is literally taken into Pharaoh's harem. He becomes one of his wives and disgustingly Abram for a season profits from that. So it's not like a, this isn't just like a quick thing and then he rescues and gets out and it's made clear very quickly. It goes on long enough to where Abram receives gifts, uh, which would be kind of like a dowry on his behalf, right? Because he's the brother. And so he gets money for this. Um, it's wild um, that Abram would profit off Sarai's objectification. It's terrible, but the Lord intervenes before the worst can happen. So verse 17, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is a wild story. Abraham is said to be the father of all who believe. 
But as uh, a commentator, Miguel de la Torre writes, this passage presents a faithless man, not a faithful man. He leaves the promised land because of famine, not believing God will provide. He fearfully lies concerning his wife, lacking faith in a God who will safeguard him so that the promise can be fulfilled. He sells his wife for riches rather than rely on God to provide for his needs. At every turn, Abram demonstrates his lack of faith, undermining God's divine plan. And in so doing, he jeopardizes the divine promise. Not only is this just bad for Sarah, it, if, it, if it's carried out, God's promise can't happen because they can't have a child. They can't become a great nation. God can't bless the world through Abram and Sarai's seed. Uh, he quotes the scholar Von Rad, and he says it best, the bearer of promise himself is the greatest enemy of the promise for its greatest threat comes from him. I think that's worth repeating as we think about salvation. The bearer of promise himself is the greatest enemy of the promise for its greatest threat comes from him. Finally, the holder of God's promise is shamed by the worldly Pharaoh who demonstrates greater obedience to and fear of the God of Abram than Abram does. And so in this story, so quickly after the call of Abram, we see Abram's sin. And just thinking right here, right now, that really mirrors Adam and Noah, right? Adam is chosen, quickly sins. Noah is chosen, quickly sins. Abram is chosen and quickly sins. But what's the difference? We talked about this last week. The covenant wasn't a command, but now the covenant is a promise. And so God has promised to bless Abram. He didn't promise to bless Adam. He didn't promise to bless Noah. He commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. But now God's on the line as somebody who has committed himself to Abram. Why does God tolerate this? Why should we look to Abraham as an example? Uh, this happens again later. He, he does this twice. I think that is really important for us as Christians in this season. We live in a time of reckoning where lots of once powerful people are being stripped of their power because of moral failure. Um, and and I think there is a, a tremendous amount of like wisdom and justice in that happening in the present tense, but it even applies to historical figures. Um, SFUSD was very close to renaming Abraham Lincoln High School. And um, you probably learned this story, they like surveyed all the school names in SFUSD and looked at all of their history and tried to identify, is there anything uh, connected with racism and misogyny and uh, discrimination and oppression um, on, on the names of any of the people, and they came up with, I think, uh, 20 plus names, and it included Abraham Lincoln. And the reason was because he allowed the execution of three dozen Sioux warriors in 1862. And so there was a Sioux uprising, an uprising that was to take back their land. So it is uh, tragic, uh, the story of American Indians um, being stripped of their land and culture. Um, 300 were sentenced to death in Minnesota. Lincoln commuted most of the cases, uh, but he left 38 to be executed because he sort of read their case and he felt like these 38, the execution was justified. Um, all that to say, this is the reason that SFUSD put forth to strip Abraham Lincoln High School of its name, um, that, that students should not attend a school named after such a man who did that. 
Uh, and we were explaining to this to our kids who grew up really close to Abraham Lincoln High School that they're like, it's very much part of their uh, upbringing. Uh, Trinity's response was, are they going to name it after trees and animals? Like who, who will they name it after? And I think that's actually was the plan is that they were going to replace the names. Diane Feinstein Elementary was also going to be renamed. Um, they're not doing that right now. They might return to it. But um, as Christians, we know nothing of spotless heroes. Like our whole Bible is full of main characters, except for Jesus, admirable figures in church history. They're all marred by sin and sometimes serious sin with terrible consequences. And so we learn from both their goodness and their sin. And in fact, it's in the context of human sin that we marvel that any good could come from Abram that anything good, that such a man who would do this, how can he be considered faithful in any respect? Miguel de la Torres again, rather than presenting a narrative where Abram, the patriarch of the faith, is portrayed as pure, faithful, and heroic, the biblical text shows us a very human Abram, warts and all. The biblical narrative is less concerned with whitewashing the leaders of the faith than presenting us with a God who accepts the unworthy as instruments of God's new creation. Because all fall short of the glory of God, no one is deserving, no one is perfect. Genesis is not a book that presents us with bigger-than-life heroes. Rather, it shows us ordinary folk who, like us, fail at times to rise to our better selves. Faithless people like Abram provide hope for the rest of us that we, too, could be used by the Creator. So as the story moves forward, this is our first big story where we meet the character of Abram. And we move forward, Abram's chastened by this and he shows faith in God. And so the next two stories are admirable stories. Um, they're complicated. Um, and so let's just move through them uh, quickly. First, Abraham separates from Lot, his nephew. Um, even though God had not blessed Abram with a child or with land, he'd blessed Abram with a lot of stuff and they had too much stuff to be able to uh, shepherd together. He came out of Egypt with a great deal more than he went in with. And so they separated. And Abraham showed faith in God, both in letting Lot go, who was the closest thing to a son, to an heir. So he let him go and in letting Lot choose the best looking land. He gave him the choice. So Genesis 13, verse eight. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. This wasn't an easy move for Abram. It took faith for him to do this. And we know that because verse 14 shows Abram needing assurance from God. So God comes in and speaks to Abram because Abram needs encouragement. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. 
And so Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And so Abram, we see here, stepping out in faith and then believing God when God encourages him. The second story is Abram rescuing Lot. Um, You maybe heard some foreboding in Lot's choice. He chose a land like Egypt. He settled near Sodom, whose men were wicked. And we all know what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah eventually. But in this first story about Sodom, it gets itself involved in sort of a territorial spat. Um, This is like foreign policy difficulties. And Sodom loses. And so the enemy in a war... The enemy of Sodom took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Now, in context, you think about it, Lot just left Abram. Surely he was tempted to just let Lot go, right? It's not his son, it's his nephew. Um, And and not out of spite, but just asking, is it worth it? I'm going to risk my life to save my nephew. And I'm gonna risk my possessions. But that's what Abram does in faith. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants had defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Now, typically in this situation, in this culture, Abram would have just earned himself the right to be king of Sodom, right? He's certainly proven himself as the true king of Canaan in this situation. He is the king. He is in charge. He has authority. And at the very least, Sodom is now in his debt. And so that's not something a king wants to live under. And so Sodom sort of tries to offer a deal. In verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. A pastor explains, um, do good. It must have seemed attractive to take a shortcut and seize what God had promised. The promised land now lay at his feet. It looked as if he could seize a large part of it and possess both people and land. And so earlier you have Abram's faith challenged when he decided to rescue Lot. And, And now his faith is tested again. Before he had to draw his sword against all human wisdom to rescue his undeserving relative. Now he had to sheath his sword once again against human wisdom to wait for God's time to inherit the land. God's time to give him the land had not yet come and Abram would rather wait for God's time, even if he might die waiting, than stretch out his hand to snatch the forbidden fruit. So this catches us up. So in Genesis 15, 1, it says, after these things, these are the things after which this happens. Abraham had showed himself immediately faithless with Sarai in a terrible story. But then he shows himself faithful with Lot and with the small kingdoms around him. Abraham had obeyed God. He'd settled in Canaan. He was being a blessing to those around him. This is what God commanded Abraham to do in the call of Genesis 12. And that's the problem addressed by Genesis 15, because Abraham was doing his part 
but God had not yet done what he promised to do. Abraham, it's, it, it's, it's a little messy, right? He, he wasn't perfect, but in general, he was being faithful. Was God being faithful? And so God comes down to assure Abram. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram is exasperated. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And the temptation to doubt God was so strong. In practical terms, the promise seemed as far away from fulfillment as ever. Lot had apparently gone back to Sodom, and now someone who was not even a relative of Abraham stood to inherit his estate. Abram didn't have anything that God had promised him. And this is a really beautiful scene because we're beginning to see a rich relationship develop between God and man. Up to this point, conversations with God had been really one-sided, where God speaks and then Abraham sort of silently obeys. But in Genesis 15, we, we, we look a little deeper into the relationship. Um, Abraham speaks back to God. He's frustrated. He's sad. He's grieved. He's wrestling. Honesty is invited. And Abraham isn't rebuked for questioning God. Instead, God responds like a loving father. He speaks assurance to him. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, to be fair, all God is doing is simply repeating what he'd already said in more grand terms. He's not giving Abraham any more details. He's not attempting to prove himself to Abraham. Um, God does not have to prove himself to us when he calls us to believe. He's not obligated to do that. Sometimes he does, just as he does with doubting Thomas, right? But remember Jesus' words to Thomas. He says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It should be enough for God to simply speak. And it was enough for Abram. Genesis 15, 6. And he believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Faith was Abram's normal response to God's words. Abram's faith was a settled conviction that God would do what he had promised. We sang that this morning, that God does what he promises, no matter what. Does this mean Abram had no more doubt? Not at all, because verse 7, we sort of repeat the pattern um, of 1 through 6 where God speaks, Abraham doubts, and God assures. So verse seven, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abraham responds, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Again, God keeps saying that he's going to do something, but Abraham, Abraham's still waiting. He doesn't own any land yet. He doesn't have a child. And so that's when we arrive at the covenant ceremony and it gets real weird. Verse nine, he said to him, God said to Abram, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. 
and he brought them all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. And so he sort of like created an aisle of carcasses, a bloody lane. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And so what's happening here? Well, in kindness to Abraham, God is going a step further than just repeating his promises. That's what he's been doing. He's just been saying the promises over and over again. Um, He doesn't have to do anything more because he's God. What God says is true, period. God can't fail to keep his promises. But as a testimony to Abram and foreshadowing the future, God supports his promise with a covenant. And here God ties himself to Abram so that Abram's future is inextricably linked to God's future. And this ceremony is weird to us, but it was standard practice in the ancient Near East and probably something that Abram would have been familiar with. And so you have animals and you cut them in half and set them uh, alongside each other and you make a sort of pathway, um, a lane to walk through. And in this ceremony, the two covenant partners are making an oath in which they call a curse of death upon themselves if they do not keep the covenant. And so walking between the animals, cut in half is a way of saying, may I become like these dead animals if I do not keep my promise to you. Now, normally, in what Abram was expecting, both parties walk through the lane. Both of them are supposed to walk uh, because they both have made promises. They both have ends of the deal that they need to keep up. But that's not what happens here. Abram would only be a witness of this ceremony, even as it's about him. So verse 12, it says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. He's speaking about the Exodus in the future. But I will bring judgment on the nation, Egypt, that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so what he's saying, he's saying is I can't give you this land yet because the Amorites don't yet deserve to be kicked out. God is a God of justice, even though he knows in the future, eventually they will deserve that. Right now they don't. And so I'm not going to just uh, write them off uh, because of their future. But here's where the important piece of the ceremony comes. It says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. I will give you all of this land. It will be yours. And in this ceremony, God is not just assuming, not just assuring Abram that he'll keep his promise. He is saying to Abram and to us, you can be so certain that I will keep my promise to you. I, Yahweh, eternal God, promise to kill myself if I do not keep these promises. And not only that, I put you to sleep to show that you are actually not responsible for any part of this promise. It is only on me. I am the only one to walk through this path. 
It's all me. So I will kill myself if I don't keep my end of the covenant and I will kill myself if you don't keep your end of the covenant. I am walking through on both of our behalves, not just for me, but for you too. If this covenant is broken for whatever reason, for whatever reason, for my unfaithfulness or for yours, I will pay the price. If you or your descendants, Abram, for whom you are making this covenant fail to keep it, I will pay the price in blood. It is unbelievable. You can't believe it, especially when you think of the dreadful record of human beings thus far. Right? This isn't just coming out of nowhere. We have seen humanity fail repeatedly. Of course we can trust God to keep his promise. It is in his very nature to keep his promise. He always does what is good and right and perfect. But you cannot trust mankind. There is none righteous. No, not one. Can you imagine the gasps from the angels in heaven as they watch this unfold? No, God. Why would you do that? Not for them, not for Abraham, not for Dave. Why would you make that promise? Because it is in this moment that God seals the fate of Jesus. Jesus, right here in this moment, is condemned to die. All because of God's reckless promise. His reckless love. But this is how much God loves us. This is how much God loves you. He will do anything. He will do everything to bless you and redeem you and make you his treasured possession. Here, he literally puts his life on the line. He bets it all, willing to pay the ultimate price for your salvation. And so when faith wanes, when we're tired of waiting, like Abram is tired of waiting, when like Abram, we're tired of being faithful in the face of hostility, when we're wondering whether God is going to keep his promises, when we're wondering whether God is able to keep his promises, we remember the blood. Abram would have remembered this for the rest of his life, the image of God walking in an alley of blood on his behalf. We remember how God purchased our salvation with his son's blood. And if God gave us his very own son, how will he not also give us all things? Can anything stand in God's way? No. Genesis 15 teaches, that, teaches us that nothing can stand in the way, not even my own failure, my own sin, because God didn't ask me to walk through the blood. He didn't ask me to walk through that, to make that promise. He knew I could not keep that promise. Only he could keep it for his sake and for my sake. He only asked me to watch and believe. And so every week in communion, we have the opportunity to strengthen waning faith. That's why we take communion every week to remember the body and blood of Jesus. Uh, some Sundays we don't come weak. And so worship is more celebratory. We have coffee in our hand and so we feel good. Um, but sometimes you kind of crawl to church on Sunday. It's not the place that you want to be. It's not where you feel like encouragement lies, where rest is. And it doesn't necessarily mean you've had a bad week. Notice how Abraham's discouraging moment, his doubt, happened after great success. Man, 
he just single-handedly defeated four kingdoms. That's pretty, pretty awesome, right? He should feel awesome, but actually not if he trusts God. Abraham's doubts here are actually inspired by faith. It's because he believes God that he's not satisfied. He was promised a son. He was promised a home. Material victory is not what God had promised him. And so he gets to it and it's great and he's thankful and he does like give honor to the Lord uh, with Melchizedek in Genesis 14. But he still feels great lack. And we can feel that too, even after success, career success, work-life balance, marriage and family, whatever it is that we feel like, man, in, a, in, in the world's eyes, my, my life looks really good. But this isn't what God promised. God, Jesus said life abundant. Jesus said life with him. Jesus said world peace. Jesus said no more tears. And so it's possible for faith to actually inspire doubt, to inspire dissatisfaction. God, I have been faithful to you. I've resisted temptation from the world for easy money and easy glory. I've held out for your blessing and still I don't have it. And if that's you, a suffering saint, the body and blood of communion strengthens you. It reminds you that God does keep his promises at whatever cost. Or maybe you haven't been faithful to him this week, and so you're not coming as a suffering saint, but a sinner. You've not been faithful to the covenant. You failed to be loving and joyful, patient, peaceful, kind, self-controlled. You've been marked by pride and lust and gluttony and uh, rage. Again, communion strengthens you because the blood is for sinner too, right? For sinner and saint both. God keeps his promises. Even when I fail, communion points us to the body and blood of Jesus, that God will keep his promises and he will even keep yours. That is what grace is. He will keep his promises and your promises and he will fulfill everything. And that is good news. Let's pray.